I think this text before us is captured well by some of the Christmas songs. I, I don't know that you're maybe familiar with this one, but um, the wording I don't really appreciate, but the question is a good question. Who is he in yonder stall? Not, my, not the phrasing I normally would use, but the question is, who is, who is that baby over there in that manger? I think that's a, a question that is not simply relevant for the shepherds or you know, even for Mary and Joseph to consider, but that's the question we all should be considering. Um, then there's another Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? And I, I think there's an element in which Mary did know, but probably didn't get it all. And maybe you're a little bit like that. You understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You understand who the Lord is in many respects. But uh, if you are human, you don't get it all. If you're merely a new Christian and you're still growing in your faith rapidly as you learn more and more of who your Savior is, your mind is filled with the just wonder of God of gods being born as man for the sake of those he chose to love. And it's incredible to think about what that really means. When you look in John chapter 1, John's account of the birth of Jesus Christ is, is rather not imaginative when it comes to the storyline. We don't have wise men. We don't have angels appearing and Joseph struggling with whether or not to marry this lady who's pregnant that he loves but is not pregnant by him. We don't have shepherds, and we don't have genealogies, at least not to speak of in the way that Luke or Matthew would have them. I want you to look in, in John 1.14. This is John's Christmas story in a theological nutshell. The Word became flesh. It's not very long. Maybe I should learn something about preaching long. If you can tell the whole Christmas story in about five words, man, you have, you have written tightly. You have written well. And John uses this idea of the Word. If you go back to verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And he begins to unfold for us this baby, this person, this one who was flesh who wasn't flesh before, the one who joins humanity through the incarnation, this word who becomes flesh and tabernacles who dwells with us. Why does he use that phrase word as we begin this morning? That, that's a, probably a relevant question. I think he does it at, at least to accomplish two separate tasks that are really valuable for us when we come to the, the person of Christ, really who he is. One is if we start with the name Jesus, particularly if you're new to this consideration of, of Jesus Christ being the incarnate Son of God, you begin with a, a, a human name, a human identity. In fact, if I had started this morning by asking the question, I want you to picture in your minds Jesus. Half of you have this long-haired, bearded man from some Renaissance painting floating through your mind. He's probably even white, which is a little bit cringy because... He was Jewish. He probably should be a little darker than your imagination may have him. Well, that's, that's not what John wants his readers to think of. He doesn't want them to think of, of the human. Because the Son of God isn't merely human. And so he would have been leading his readers to be coming in with all sorts of preconceived baggage when he wants to start with a blank slate. But if he had started by saying... God was the Word, He would have not only given us wrong theology, He would have set, up off, set us off on the wrong foot. We would have thought that the, the Messiah was God the Father, the, the monotheistic idea that maybe a Jewish person or a Muslim person might have, that there is one singular non-triune God. And having to like erase and remove all the baggage and 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 re-educate his readers would have been all sorts of trouble. So what, what the gospel writer does is start with a weighty word, but a word that he can then define. 
so that we don't have all sorts of baggage clouding our thinking as we read through the initial account of who is this child who is born. So rather than starting with the messianic line, as Luke and Matthew do, or starting with his ministry as Mark does, John takes a separate account and looks at this precious gift that God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ and starts out with this thought. In the beginning was the Word. Well, why does he say that? I'm going to suggest to you about six theological points he makes in these first five verses, and so we're going to have to move fairly quickly through them. Um, Hopefully, I am not introducing you to anything that's entirely new, but I trust that it'll be an encouragement to you. Uh, Maybe you've had the experience of getting a Christmas gift that you don't know what it is. I mean, we could go to all sorts of imaginary places with this, but go, go back 150 years and imagine that you gave a farmer a big, huge plowing combine with unlimited lifetime supply of gas and parts. Well, you don't want to put that under his Christmas tree. I always have nervous when I hear cell phones. I'm always glad when they're reading scripture to us. <laughs> I haven't lost you yet. So they're even in the right book of the Bible. They're in the Gospel of John. So um, I want you to imagine that farmer getting that lifetime, so that, 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 that combine with that lifetime parts and, and fuel. And, and rather than giving the combine under the tree at his house because it wouldn't fit in his house, you just give him the keys. Having never seen automobile keys before or tractor keys before, he gets the keys and he looks at you and says, what is this? There's not even a smile on his face. Just curiosity and confusion. And you're like, well, those are the keys to a tractor with a lifetime supply of gas and parts. And he's still looking at you like you're an alien. And so you take him outside where you have this, this combine vehicle that can do all of the work of the farm while he sits in a GPS-controlled, and you just got to work on the imagination here, controlled system. I know some of you are like, well, there are no satellites in the 1800s. That wouldn't work. So just go with me on this. And he begins to see how powerful and effective and meaningful this gift is. I think sometimes we've lost the wonder maybe of what that farmer would feel like as he begins to see what he's actually been given. And we take for granted and presume we deserve the gift of Christ. We don't understand how special and precious he is because we've lived in the context of the Christian atmosphere and salvation and grace and forgiveness for decades. And frankly, our culture presumes that the wrath of God and salvation are something inherited like Christian culture. I just encourage you again, or to once again, renew your wonder and awe at the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than using the word in my outline, I'm going to use Jesus Christ, not to confuse you, and not to undo John's uh, masterful work with the, the concept and building out a theology of the Son of God's incarnation, but just simply for clarity, because he certainly is talking about Jesus Christ. Again, if you go to verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He speaks of John's testimony. Clearly, he's referring us to Jesus Christ at this point. So we come back to verse 1, and we ask, what is John teaching us? Well, he begins with this. In the beginning was the word. There's another book of the Bible that begins with those same few words, in the beginning. And it takes a different turn, though. It says, in the beginning, God. John says, in the beginning, was the Word. Now, if we just take that that verb and don't say something like this, in the beginning, the Word began. That's not what it says. In the beginning, we, we, we pan our attention and thoughts back to the creation account like Genesis 1 would have us. And in the beginning, here's God. And John says, in that beginning, as we pan back, it's not just God we'd see, but we would also see the Word. He is not coming onto the scene. He is not newly on the scene. He is not arriving. He's not being born. He's already present. In the beginning, 
John is challenging his readers to recognize that the Son of God is eternal, preexistent. He is the everlasting God. I think we have a hard time considering what that even means. We are so limited by the measures of our life and our imaginations that we, we don't have an easy ability to think back before time began and consider what life would be like. In fact, in the beginning, as God creates the heaven and earth and he makes light, and he separates it from darkness, I want you to imagine a world that's neither light nor dark. I don't even know what that is. I mean, if you don't have light, you have. And if you don't have dark or light, what do you have? I don't know either. But, but like, like our human experience does not give us category to even capture what it means for the Son of God to have lived forever in the past and to have no end in the future. We can imagine no end in the future. So far, I've never ended, as far as I know. Like, your life begins and it hasn't ended yet. You with me? So I think we can actually conceptualize waking up tomorrow, waking up the next day, and waking up the next day and not ever ending. But you all know the world began much before you began. And so there's, we have prehistory. We're able to think back previous to us, but we measure that by events and change and circumstances and history and people. But if you go back to Genesis 1-1 in the beginning and go back a year, what was happening? Well, I could theologically tell you that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were dwelling together in unimaginable joy and fellowship. I have no idea what that looks like. I, I, I don't know how they interact with one another except in supreme love and affection and delight and joy and comprehension and conversation as much as they communicate with one another. I still don't know what that looks like. I don't even know how to imagine it. If you were to go back from, I'll call it negative one, to negative 20 billion, there the triune God is in unimaginable joy and delight, fellowshipping with one another in perfect love. And if you were to go back another 20 billion years to negative 40 billion and one, they're there, fellowshipping. Uh, even saying they're there, there is no there. Like, like our minds just stall and cannot imagine what this means. So here John frames out for us in the beginning, we all, we all think of the creation account. And he says, the word was. Right? He, he's there. But it's not just to say that Jesus Christ is the everlasting God. He's calling upon the reader to recognize this is something God alone can claim, this timelessness or this infiniteness in regard to time, this eternality. Something like Psalm 90, which says, Lord... You have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. John says that's, that's who the word is. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Jesus Christ is the everlasting God. He is not merely the everlasting God. He says next in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus Christ has eternal fellowship with God. And, and setting aside the challenge of the cross and the forsakenness that the Son experienced, there's this fellowship that the Son has with the Father. The Word was with God. At one of the same time, while eternal with God, he is distinct from God. Like an officer trying to check an alibi might ask, was anyone with you at such and such a time? Now, they would not be expecting you, nor would they accept the answer, yeah, me, myself, and I were all together, or some nonsense like that, okay? Jesus Christ being present with God makes him distinct from God. 
So while the Son is identified as eternal, John's second line says, but He's not the Father. He's distinct from the Father. He's a separate person from the Father. So that they are, and actually that Greek word there has the idea of inclined toward, that He is together in fellowship and intimacy with the Father. And in fact, as you read through the rest of the gospel, this is a theological point that Jesus himself makes as he gets to the latter part of his ministry, that last supper evening in John 14. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 11, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So he he is speaking of mutual indwelling that he and the Father share Sweet fellowship together with each other. Now again, as we're trying to think through, negative one, what that year looked like for the Son of God and the Father and the Spirit to dwell together. Mutual indwelling is one of the things that the Lord seems to describe as happening in the triune relationship. That is, they are different persons able to relate to one another and fellowship with one another in a way that expresses unity, not identicality. They're not the same identical person. There are three persons who fellowship with one another. John 17, same thing. Holy Father, keep them by your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So, so this theology of fellowship with, uh, with the Trinity, that the, the Trinity has among its persons, is something that Jesus Christ thinks is important for his disciples to know about. In fact, I would suggest to you that both of those texts lead us to this conclusion. God dwells in sweet fellowship. Therefore, the believer has a life that is marked by fellowship. Jesus leads on in those texts to say that love for one another is such a mark of his people that that's how the world will know that he is the true Savior and that we are truly his disciples. Why? Because this is God's nature. He is a communal God. He has dwelt in community. He has never not had community. So it is the essence of godliness to be in community. Now I want to flip that. Therefore, it's the essence of ungodliness to be opposed to community. So, so here's this theological claim he's making. The son was with God. He's distinct from God, dwelling in sweet communion with the Father. And I would imply, or then I think Scripture implies, therefore, you and I must be in community, not only with God, but with one another, or we are denying or rejecting the very nature that God calls us to be when he calls us to be godly, to be like him, to share in his character. So there's two claims so far. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Jesus Christ fellowships with God. That means he's distinct from God. And yet, John continues, and the Word was God. Again, he has packed so much theology into one singular verse. It's humbling to see the mastery with which the, this Spirit has moved John's pen. In the beginning was the Word. He's eternal. And the Word was with God. He is distinct from the Father. And yet, the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. This is one of those clearest statements in the whole entire New Testament. Romans 9 might be similar to it where it says, uh, to them belong, that is to the Jewish people, belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Although John is not mentioning the Holy Spirit here, he will later in, in chapters 14 through 17. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the second person of the triunity. Usually we say trinity, we kind of just compress the word, but tri means three, unity means one. 
And so what you have in verse 1 is Jesus Christ is both distinct from the Father, and yet he is divine in nature. Different persons, singular nature. There is one singular God who exists in three persons eternally. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not an afterthought. The Son of God is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. God the Father is eternal. And they dwell together as three distinct persons with one singular nature. Now this is essential then because when we come to verse 14, the Word became flesh. How, how long has the Word lived? He's eternal. How long has the Word been flesh? We'll say roughly 2,000 years. Some of you are like, Whoa. you don't, we weren't going for precision there. Now understand that the Son of God has lived for billions of years and billions of years on into eternity past, never not existing. But in Bethlehem, the Son of God, the eternal God, the one who fellowships in sweet union with the Father, which means he is holy and pure and sinless in all ways, becomes flesh. It doesn't even say human. And he's pointing to the fact that he was tangibly physical. He was meat like you and me. The Son of God becomes human without yet failing to be God. He maintains his deity. In verse 3, though, we see more. Jesus Christ is the exclusive agent of creation. Okay, so this is the fourth claim John makes. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, so there's a claim. All things were made through him. And just in case we're like, well, he says, nothing, nothing that's been created exists outside of the Son of God's masterwork. He has made all things. Nothing exists without him at all. This is not an unusual claim. The New Testament makes this claim at least two other times. In Colossians 1, he has made all things. Hebrews 1 he, he's not only made all things, he sustains them by the power of his word. Jesus Christ is the exclusive agent of creation. Notice even the, the way it's said, though. All things were made through him. He's the agent that the Father uses. Now, this may be, like many of my illustrations, a little bit quirky in trying to think through this, but... If you were to drive by a, a McDonald's franchise building being built, and as you're driving by, you're like, oh, McDonald's is building another restaurant. And I'm like, well, actually, McDonald's isn't building it. You'd be like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, the contractor's actually building it. And if you were to say, no, 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 actually, the contractor's not building it. He's just hired workers to build it. In one sense, we would all be right. That, that the Father, in that sense, would be represented by McDonald's. It was his will, his decision, his determination to use agency. What's the agency? The contractor. I think that would be the best parallel for Jesus Christ. Who's the guy swinging the hammer in this analogy? It's the Holy Spirit. I think that's really clear from Genesis that the Holy Spirit is the agent that actually the, the Son uses. To accomplish it. So in that analogy, maybe you would see that the Father's plan was executed by the will and the work of the Son through the Holy Spirit. Nothing in this world has been created without the Son's agency. Nothing. And I would suggest to you there's a massive implication for you all for this claim that John makes, which is true. Colossians 1 would say it this way. All things were made by him and for him. You are made for Jesus. Any other use is a misuse. Any other pursuit 
is a detour off the path of God's planned grace for his creation. And that means for you and me, the best thing, the best thing you can do is follow and pursue and obey and love the Lord Jesus Christ. The best thing you can do. Sin will tempt you. It will call you onto a detour. And like many detours, they're the wrong way, the wrong direction. They're obnoxious. They're not the right way. And they claim to get you there. Sin will never get you there. It'll just take you away from Jesus. Your purpose in life is the glory and the joy of Jesus. And that is good. It is good for you. Its outcome is good to you. It will result in your best possible place of grace and blessing. That is a proposition of faith. Because your heart, your mind, your intelligence, the wisdom of this world will tell you that it is not worth it to follow Jesus. It is always worth it to follow Christ. He has made you. He has made this world. He has done so for his purposes. And those purposes will bring glory to the Father. And they'll bring goodness to all who pursue Jesus. Do you believe that? Can I just encourage you? The disciplines of Christian living are a good place to test whether or not you actually believe it. I can tell the economy is hard because I feel it financially. I hear it from others. But if when your spending is trying to be controlled, you take from your giving to the Lord, there might be a proposition that you're not actually believing that we've just said. That is, you are made for Christ. When your family life is hard and your children aren't going and doing and thinking right and you respond with sinful elements of control, you lash out in anger to get them to step right. You're not living for Christ. If when coworkers join in the water cooler gossip and are, are bad-mouthing other workers or maybe even your manager or boss, and you join in, you are not living for Christ. I would encourage you to consider that that will not only bring sorrow in your workplace, but is ultimately a detour away from God's grace and his goodness in your life. It will hurt you before your relationship and with your relationship with the Lord. It will hurt you. If I could just encourage some of you who are struggling, you're on the point of giving up. You're hurting, you're tired, you're struggling. If your reason for doing what you do is for the sake of someone in this life not named Jesus Christ, that motivation will fail you. For instance, if you're a good parent for the sake of your kid's salvation, that is not big enough. Be a good parent for the sake of Christ. Do it for him. He is faithful. He will stay with you. He'll reward you. His grace will strengthen you to do this. And it is also the reason you are made. I'm going to tie together the five and six points of John's text here. Because I think they go together. I want you to look at verse 4. So Jesus, as the author of life, as the one who dwells in fellowship with God and is distinct from God, as the one who is God, as the one who is eternal, is also the one that for all mankind is life. I should say for all creation. Look again at the text. John 1.4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ is the author of life. This could mean something like, the Son of God sustains all life in all of creation. Scripture makes that point. That Jesus Christ is holding this world together by the, the powerful word that he has. And in fact, that's not out of character with even Genesis. In Genesis, repeatedly you'll have something like this. God said... First one, let there be light. And maybe that's what John is referring to. I think not. 
that in him was life is not referring to the sustaining life of all creation, but perhaps it's shadowed in this thought that he's really speaking of eternal life. Let me read John 17, 1 for you. Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes towards heaven and said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may, be, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's speaking about more than just physical life. And I think John builds a theology of life through this text. Jesus Christ is life. Let me see if I can just string this together theologically for you, because I think this helps us understand why the consequence of sin is death. Who is the author of life? Jesus. Sin is to separate yourself from and rebel against God. So if you unplug your vacuum from its power source, are you angry at the power source or do you blame the fact that you've unplugged it for the reason it stopped working? Jesus Christ is the source of life. And sin is to unplug yourself from the life-giving Son of God. How then do we as humanity look at God and say, how dare you threaten us with hell and spiritual death? We have separated ourselves from God through sin. Isaiah 59 makes this really clear. Our sins have built a barrier between us and God so that our prayers are not heard, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 say. It's, it's our sins that have dislocated us from the grace of God. It is our rebellion that has caused God to allow our sins to drive us out of the garden of his grace and life. We dare not think that God is merely punishing us for our sin. It is that life is a byproduct of living in his presence. It is a byproduct of, of being in the sphere of his light and life. It is him who gives life. And if we run from him, you do not have life. If you are not in fellowship with him, you should be warned that you may not have life. Believers, you are adopted by God. I do not think you ever lose the the inheritance. Here, John used that idea of we're children of God. That's never threatened by your sin. But if you're perpetually, my analogy is really, I don't like the word unplugged. So just be gracious to your pastor on this one. If you are unplugged in a long era of life from your Savior and his grace, you should be concerned that you were never actually granted saving grace that you've never had spiritual life. But as we consider the consequences of sin, when Adam chose to run from God's life and his presence and his fellowship, he ran into the halls of death because God is life. And here the Son is the life-giving God. And this is why Jesus says in this prayer, Father, you've given this to my hands, and now I have eternal life. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because he's the Son, and in him is life. And he continues on. He's not just the author of life. Jesus Christ is true. So he says, in him is life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. My initial thought in reading that verse is, he's speaking of the cross, like the darkness and the light were in opposition, and, and in the death of Christ, darkness was trying to overcome the light. I don't think that's the best way to take it. If you were to come down a little bit further, you'll see in verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. There, the idea of overcoming has more the idea of, of not overcoming, but of apprehending intellectually, of understanding. 
And I think that's the better way to take it in, in verses 4 and 5, that the darkness coming against the light is not that the darkness is fighting against it, but the darkness is not able to understand or comprehend it. It's not able to receive it. In fact, if you were to look at the Greek dic- dictionary, it gives three definitions for that verse's understanding of the word overcome. And the, I think the one to take is actually the idea of comprehension intellectually, which is no surprise. This is a byproduct of the darkened mind. Right? 2 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God or the things of, of God because they're spiritually discerned. Jesus Christ comes and presents himself as the Messiah. How did that go in general? Did the world receive him? No, the world didn't understand his claims. They rejected his claims. They rejected the truth of who he was and embraced the lies of the devil, and it led to his execution on the cross. In general, the world does not receive him. And so I think in verse 5, you see that opposition happening here. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. You come to chapter 3, in your mind you have that that verse in 16 that we all are so familiar with. But, But look a little further down. Verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. Who's that? That's Jesus. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. If you go to, oh, let me just use my kid's high school. If you go to the Christian high school, and let's just say you go to, you're in one of those classes that is filled with people who say they're Christians but are really probably not, and they're really, really bad Christians. By that I mean they're really, really bad people who say they're Christians. And you have a life of integrity and gospel living. Do you know who they don't like? You all know it. Sometimes the hardest place to do right is with people who say they're doing right but live wickedly. Now here Jesus Christ is in exactly that situation in Israel. He comes as the true light. And all of a sudden the Pharisees who say, hey, we are people of the light. We are people who do right. We are holy. Don't doubt it. And Jesus comes in and is like, repent, you brood of vipers. He will die. Right? We will kill him rather than acknowledge the truth that we are actually children of our father, the devil. We would rather die in our self-righteous sins than humble ourselves and get grace and life. My fear would be that would be someone in this room. And Bakersfield, you're born Christian. You know what I, and I'm saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. We are born as, as God-fearing folk because we are not like those people in San Francisco. And we take pride in our morality because we don't flagrantly advertise our sin. We just do it in private and tell people we don't. We say we're Christians because we're a little more wholesome than the guy next door. That's the Pharisees. In a world of darkness, you need Jesus Christ because he is the exclusively true life, God, and salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. And no one gets to the Father except through him. Of all of the pathways life has to offer you, there is one singular pathway that leads to the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you do not receive Jesus, you will receive the punishment for your sins. If he is not your Lord, if he is not your Savior, if he has not forgiven you, if you do not walk in his grace, then you are not his, and there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved. He is the only and the exclusive light for all mankind, verse 9 says. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you have no other hope. Come to Jesus. Trust in him. You can imagine that farmer in the 1800s looking at that key to that tractor 
looking at that weird, monstrous piece of metal in his yard and throwing the key away because he cannot possibly imagine what use it would have for him. He's got no harness for his horses to pull. He doesn't even know how the key would make that thing move. And so it becomes a monstrous lawn ornament because he throws the key away. Because he could not imagine how helpful that could be for him. I think there are people in this room who rather than accept Jesus Christ and humble themselves and ask for salvation, would rather walk in their own rejection of him than accept him because of the shame or the cost of following Christ. I want to suggest to you a final application that I think is, to me, one of the sweet truths John is beginning to build a foundation for that I think all of you should walk out of here being thankful for Jesus Christ. Scripture says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We mentioned before that the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Father live together in eternally joyful communion. I want to read verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt where? He, he dwells among us, is what Scripture says. So here's... Here's the Son of God and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And as they architect out this plan of redemption and rescue for sinners, this is, please, imagine with me. Do not think that this is actually how it happened, but I want you to imagine this. The Father says to the Son, wouldn't it be sweet if they could enjoy fellowship like we do? The Son says, well, if they sin... Not only do they not get fellowship with us, they won't get fellowship with one another. And the Father says, yeah, but we can fix this. Well, Father, how would we fix this? And the Holy Spirit says, I, I think I know where you're going. We can send an agent who will join in fellowship with them and commune with them and bring them into fellowship with us. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit conspiring this plan together say, wouldn't it be a sweet gift to give them communion with one another and with us? What is Jesus' name given in Matthew? He will be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. We look in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And if you have any doubt that this is where John has intended us to understand Jesus Christ's mission ultimately brings us, look with me in chapter 14. I already read verse 11, but I'm going to read it again, and then I want to jump down to verse 20. I guess verse 21. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus Christ is, is calling for them to understand that he and the Father are unified together, that they mutually indwell one another. Now we come down to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's fellowship. It's not merely with Jesus, it's also with the Father. Come to chapter 17. Look down with me in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. Right? Like we have the testimony of the apostles passed down through the generations, and we have believed through the testimony of the scriptures that they have given to us. Jesus Christ is praying for you on the night he is betrayed. It's to me one of the most compellingly cool verses in all the Bible. Jesus is praying for you. And since he's the son of God, I do think he means you individually as he prays for his people who will believe through the testimony of the apostles. That they may be, verse 21, what? What is Jesus praying for you? That they may be one. And what's this pattern of oneness? Just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you. So, so we go back to John 1, 2, and, and we have the Son of God, the Word, dwelling with the Father in eternally joyful communion. We come to chapter 17, Jesus is about ready to die, and he's praying to the Father, Father, give them oneness. What's his theological background for this oneness? Just like we have in sweet fellowship in the Trinity. That it may be in us and that the world may believe that you sent me. This community that is an answer to Jesus' prayer is a testimony that his words and works are true. Because the testimony in this unity should be so robust, so strong, that your human fallenness does not wreck it. And listen, some of you, you're incredible people. But just wait till you meet my sin. It will test your love. And vice versa. And so, so when the church fragments its fellowship because someone didn't do exactly what, I mean, I mean, come on, we probably forgot to give you a Christmas card. You can be offended over any little thing, and the world is. But the type of unity that is deep and sweet is divine. So that the world may believe the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Right, go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. The flesh, or excuse me, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we might have communion with the Father and with the Son, so that we might experience the love of the Father, so that the, the Son might indwell us, so that we might know we are loved by the Father, and that in that the world would see the supernatural grace of Christ in us. And know that the word of Christ be true. So here's what God has done. God has sent his son, the eternal God. The one who has eternal fellowship among the Trinity with God. The one who is the creator of all things. The one who is God of gods. The one who is life. The one who is light. John 14 says, this word became flesh so that you and I might become children of God. On Christmas Eve night, we will look at that verse that we've been granted the opportunity to be children of God. In fact, if you look at that verse real quickly with me as we end, I love the, I mean, the, the phrasing he has here is great in verse 13. That we might become the children of God, verse 12 ends. Verse 13, who were born? Whose birth are we celebrating at Christmas? In this verse, he's not born. Who's born? Other children. This is, this is the point of Christmas. We are born because he became flesh. John doesn't even say Jesus was born. John says we are born. Christmas morning happens so that there would be myriads of spiritual births in the years to come. We don't celebrate one birth. We celebrate one birth that opened up the way that many would be born children of God. Well, I hope that you have fellowship with the Son of God. Last week, we looked at Philippians 3 where he says, Rejoice in the Lord. This is the Lord. When you pray and you ask God for help, you are speaking to the one who made all things, sustains all things, who is the author of life, who is true, and who fellowships with the Father. That's who we have as our Savior. And he dwells with us because he became flesh for our sakes and for the glory of his Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. 
I ask that you would work into our hearts a sweet gratitude for the kindness that you have shown us in sending your son for us. It is overwhelming to try to reach our theological arms around the person of Jesus Christ, who is God, who is creator, who is the author of life, who is the only true light, who is eternal, and who dwells in sweet, undiminished, joyful fellowship with you. And he left the sweet joys of heaven behind to become flesh for our sakes. Father, I ask that you would help us to have joy, to have thankfulness, to have gratitude, to accept the Son for all that he is. Lord, I pray that that acceptance would be true, sincere acceptance that proves itself in lives of gratitude, in faithfulness to the Son, in obedience, in joyful devotion, and in sacrifice for his kingdom. Father, I ask that you would help us to apprehend more clearly the fellowship that we have with you through the Son. Thank you so much for coming to dwell with us through the Son of God. We thank you that at salvation and from there onward, we can truly be identified as your children. We have all of the promise and the guarantees as of those who will inherit blessings of eternity because you have made us yours through adoption. We have been born again by the Spirit. Lord, thank you for these gifts. I ask that you would strengthen the fellowship that we have with you and that we have with one another, that we might know that you love us and that your love might be manifested among us. Lord, help us to love one another with this sincere devotion that Christ shows us in his word. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen.